This is the Future of the Future show. I am your host, Mateo Berbejillo. Rob Petroso, thank you so much for being here. Mateo, thank you for having me, my friend. I appreciate it. We're going to talk today about uh, product, what it means to be in product, what it means to be a creative designer, uh, some of the stuff that you have done throughout your career which is an amazing career, uh, Rob. Uh, and I want to get started with the basics. What do you do today for a living? I, I walk into an office every day and like I talk to a bunch of really smart, young, creative people <laughs> and I have them tell me what to do on a day-to-day. -day. That's all I do now. But I mean, long story short, my role on a day-to-day -day here at Rally is as the chief product officer um, and one of the co-founders. And really it's about setting strategy and vision for what the future of our products gonna look like for the way that users interact with our products and the way we communicate with users. And a lot of that comes down to actual tangible design on a day-to-day -day where I'll jump into Figma or I'll set up email templates or I'll, I'll put together the, the sort of nuts and bolts about the way that we approach our users and the way we approach our investors on the platform. And a lot of it is high level too. It's everything from fundraising to setting strategy to setting what the goals are and the metrics that we want to hit with the product in, in Q1, Q2, and all the way through 2024. And really about setting the vision for the company. I think that we have this product that's based and rooted in emotion and in sort of getting consumers to care about these collectibles and these alternative assets and this nostalgia. And a lot of that comes from sort of my personal experience and my co-founder's personal experience. So trying to translate that into design is kind of like the day-to-day It's also like the struggle and it's all the stress and it's the therapy sessions and it's the nonstop that goes with that and trying to take things out of everybody's head and put them on paper, which from a design standpoint is always the hardest thing to do, but what I'm trying to do every single day. If you if you had um, the ability to just choose what would you like to spend most of your day on, would it be the the, the vision, the design? Uh, what do you like the most about your, your day today at Rally? I mean, the the design for me is everything is rooted in design. And my life, I think to this point, you know, it's it's been a long life at this point now. I'm like, I'm basically halfway done with it. But I think that everything you do is, and everything I've always done has been rooted in, in creativity and in design. If I could sit down and draw all day, like, and that was a way to make money, I would do it in a second. And I think that that to me, and I think to every designer, being alone with your thoughts and being able to sort of aggregate everything that you've sort of talked to your team about or everything you've been through and the thoughts that you have and articulate that and put it on paper, whether it's digital or actual physical paper and see a finished product is the most fulfilling. And I think seeing that stuff out in the world is really, really fulfilling for me too. So if I could just sit and literally design all day and create new interactions and new UI and new, new UX, new print pieces, I mean, I'd be doing that all day, but I think that at a certain point, you have to trust the team that you have. You have to put the vision on paper, maybe start the process a little bit, but then hand it off to the people who are likely seeing things a little bit differently than you and could kind of bring it to life. So that's kind of what, if I can get that balance between between the, the vision and the real tangible design and hand that to the team that I trust, that would be the day-to-day. But inevitably, like everything else, you know, you walk in the door sometimes, you get hit over the head with something that's a problem that has to be solved. And that's that becomes the entire day sometimes. You know, those are the worst days, but it all leads to like one big good outcome, hopefully. Beautiful. Um, do you ever get to a point where there's nothing coming to your head or is it always on? You're always on, you're always dreaming, thinking about something. The, the, the signs are always flowing in your head. How does that work? I think it ha it has to always be on. I think that I I'll talk to like our um, this kid Will Stern, who's an awesome awesome writer, and he creates all of our a lot of our content and does a lot of our social. 
he's way younger than me. He's in his like early 20s, you know, and we have conversations about about what he's doing on a day to day and what the focus should be. And him and I get into like heated arguments about the way that things should look and feel in a good way, good heated arguments. But I think a lot of what I'm telling him is that it's almost like working on it like your life depends on it. Because in my mind, like your life does depend on it. You're going to spend so much of your life in a career and in, at work and doing this 40, 50, 60, sometimes 100 hour weeks in the discipline that you've chosen. And that's kind of like your life's work to a certain degree. And I don't think that's really, that's not trivial to me. That's something where you want to be happy in the work and you want to be constantly thinking, constantly creating, especially in those creative endeavors. That creative curiosity, in my mind, if I stop, it goes away. And the ability for me to get those ideas out and to articulate those thoughts and the things that users love and people want to use, it goes away. So the only fulfillment, like it's great to make money and to meet new people and to get some notoriety in an industry. But if you're not getting your ideas out to me and I'm not seeing them and I'm not seeing people use them and seeing the reactions, whether they're good or bad, that's kind of a failure. And the only way in my mind to keep getting that out and to keep moving forward is to constantly be thinking about it. So, you know, I have like an email address that I made like 15 years ago. That's like my name and a random number and any random idea, like in the middle of the night, if I wake up, I'll just email it to myself and leave it there. Then there's like a whole set of notes and a notebook that's full of just random thoughts throughout the course of a day that I keep next to me. And then there's like a never ending word doc and a bunch of Google docs and a bunch of notion docs. It's just like getting it out and being able to get to the next one is a super important part of the day to day from a creative standpoint for me and being able to go back to those ideas and pick a few out if there's ever that downtime and start thinking about what those could be is like never ending endeavor. It's something that I always want to be doing and the creatives around me, I want to make sure they're always doing it too. What comes first? Um, you talked about designing something, getting it built and looking at people just reacting to it. Um, are you always thinking about new designs regardless of what people are saying? Or are you thinking about stuff because people said something? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of everything. I think that one, young designers, and I did this early on, get caught up in user feedback. And I think that the problem is that talking to users who are, who are open to having the conversation with you without any kind of like, you know, exchange of money or, or process or whatever, even if you're, you're paying them. And I think a lot of people use like SurveyMonkey and a few other platforms where it's almost like our, this, we're incentivizing somebody to have the conversation. There's this bias on their side to kind of tell you what you want to hear. And it's important, user feedback and user research is super important. Building out personas and then validating those with new cohorts that come into your product and use it is always super important. The qualitative and the quantitative have to meet somewhere in the middle. But the problem in my mind is that if you're if you, any good designer, anyone who's worth their weight, you built this product, you know it best, you know design, you know what's happening culturally. If you're really staying dialed into what's happening, you should be able to predict what the next move of that user is before they get there. So to me, it always starts with selfishly an idea typically that I would have on my own because we built these, we built the personas on Rally based around me really early on and my co-founders and it kind of stuck and it worked and cohorts got built out that looked and felt like those personas that we built. But you have to predict those needs. Great designers are able to predict needs and then really, really good designers are able to take those needs, actualize them, get feedback and get the data from the users as they're using it and then have the conversations with users and start to talk more. But especially early on when you're developing a product, you're showing it to family and friends or whatever. They're all going to be like, yeah, great. Now it's going to be awesome. Like they're not going to tell you, they're going to tell you what you want to hear to a certain degree. And even users, once you start getting them in, your super users who are the most important to your platform, 
like their interests are aligned with yours. They want to be a part of it and they want to build this thing out with you. They're going to kind of tell you what you want to hear too. So it's a little bit of a balancing act. You can't get caught up in the positivity that comes from the people who are using it and having them just validate your concepts or confirmation bias. You have to pick and choose your spots on that and be able to predict what the future looks like. So I always put it on paper first, build it out a little bit, show it to a few people, put it out in the world, and then get the feedback from users and get the feedback from people who are using it. I, don't, I try not to bury myself in the feedback too early on or in the user interviews too early on. I like the way you talk about it. And it sounds... Um, so I'm a musician. I play drums. Um, and I, I love music. And someone that I, that I love hearing talk is uh, Rick Rubin, the producer, the creative act, right? And And your process sounds a lot like you are tuned into the universe and you are like getting feedback from the universe and you're just like channeling that right and and that's always on non-stop um how do you you said you you have to be dialed in you have to be you know tuned into like predict what's going to come is there any specific way you do that is it just because you you know is it being brought up in 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 new york the city everything that's going on there what 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 makes a part of that being dialed in? Yeah, I think it's I think it's everything. I wish I I wish I had the ability to go full Zen like like Rick Rubin and remove myself from like what's happening outside these walls in Soho in New York and be able to just completely focus on 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 getting the most out of my thoughts and be able to bring those to life in a way that he does. I don't have that level of Zen because it's just oh, I'm choosing to always be on. I think part of it is this city without question. I think part of the reason that. I don't ever see myself leaving New York is that culturally you're in a place and I've, I grew up in Brooklyn in a really diverse neighborhood in an area that had like a lot of different opinions and people and places. And it's just a really densely populated area here where I grew up my whole life. I've been in these really, really densely populated areas full of people who, if, if you don't have to ask them for how they feel, they're going to tell you, you know what I mean? And that happens on the street in New York every single day. So whether it's some maniac walking down the street that might attack me right now, or it's somebody like, like a, a local manager of a restaurant who I'm having a conversation with when I walk by on Broadway or whatever, they're all going to say like, you know, something I either want to hear or don't want to hear, but they're going to make sure it gets to me. You know, and I think that that's part of keeping that around you and keeping that population density and this huge sort of vast melting pot of opinions and people and places has always been an important part of it. But I think also it's not being dismissive. I have a problem personally. And I think that when you get to a certain age, once you pass like your mid thirties, I think, and you've worked in like tech or startup for a little while. That's probably true in any industry. You get callous and you start thinking like, I've seen it all before or whatever, but then you start, you know, not to be ageist, but I try and bring as many like young people around me, not just in our office, people that are thinking way different than me and didn't grow up in an analog era. And don't think about like, when I think about music, they're not thinking about what I consider like it's oldies now. And in my mind, I was like, I'm never going to get to a point that I'm listening to something from the, the late nineties or early two thousands when I'm like close to 40, I wouldn't, But that happened. You know what I mean? Like it happened. So I'm trying to keep new opinions around you. And the only way I could do that is start thinking like you got to you have to be open to those concepts and those ideas. It's really easy to dismiss what you see on TikTok or dismiss what a new viral campaign looks like or dismiss a new brand who has like a huge cult following, but you don't understand it. I try and like spend money in places that I never typically would. And that's like brands, people, restaurants, whatever, because this if there's something happening there it's and you're and I, as a designer or creative i'm saying like i'm dismissing it and saying yeah but that's not important to me or to my users or the people i'm building for you're going to miss a boat and you're going to you're going to lose relevance really really quickly i think on on rally as an example like we've built this entire platform around ensuring that the assets that you're investing in are relevant now but will be relevant in the future 
So if I'm not seeing around those turns with people who are doing something new that has a following and has a little bit of momentum in it and dismissing that, I'm saying like, I don't care about the future. And I think that that's, that's a lot of it too, is keeping people around you who are thinking way differently than you, looking at design and using products that are way different than anything you would typically use on a day-to-day, -day, going to places that you're not supposed to necessarily be that are densely populated with people who are engaging in some sort of commerce, whether it's social or actual money, and then putting your your resources at play in those spaces and seeing what the outcome is. If you're not doing that and you're just sticking to one thing, that's awesome. If like, you know, you're a, a working living artist that has a following that can dictate their own pathway from start to finish. And there's so few people like that. I wish I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do something. And Rick Rubin's like the example where I could tell a Jay-Z or tell somebody like, nah, this is the way it's supposed to sound. Trust me, like I know this and you've never heard it before, but you're going to trust me enough to push it, push it out that way. I'm not at that point yet. I hope I get there. But until I get there, you have to keep those new opinions around you and, and you have to accept them. You can't just be like, eh, F it. That does, they, don't, they don't know what they're talking about. I know better. I've been around longer. I try and do that as much as I can. I absolutely love it. Um, when did you get into product? Was it by, did, did you choose that career path? Was it an accident? Tell us about Little Rob and how you started doing all of this. <laughs> Yeah, no, every, I mean the the best the best pathways are always accidents that turns like happy accidents, and that happened to me, and that happened to a lot of people that I'm around too. I think I was always um, my when I was younger, my parents had a had this small restaurant in Brooklyn on um, on Third Avenue Bay Ridge, and uh, it really was like a little bit of a creative endeavor. My mom was a chef, my dad was like an entrepreneur when he opened this restaurant with his brother. And it became like this neighborhood spot. It became a place that I think you meet a lot of new people and you you have a lot of new experiences. And I was super young. I was like nine, 10 years old. But I'd be there after school. I'd be doing my homework. Or I'd start to draw. And they had like, you know, paper tablecloths and like I'd get crayons and just be drawing kind of there. And that became like the start of art. And that to me, like art as a career was never a thought. It was just, I was just drawing nonstop. I get to high school. I started, you know, that became a pathway for me. It wasn't like AP art classes in my high school. It turned into a uh, it turned into a, a school for college where like that became my major. It turned because this is like pre iPhone. It turned into into graphic design and turned into digital design kind of quickly. This is like the birth of of Web 2.0. So inevitably, every designer my age learns a little bit of code and tries to make a website and like they're building little products here and there. And then all of a sudden, it's like product design became a real thing. When I got out of school, it was still art. It was still like design. It was still my way to make money. I got super lucky in that uh, I was doing like freelance work and this is like 2004, like in my last year of college. And by chance, Kanye West manager at the time saw the work at a print shop and asked the printer who did it. And then they called me and he said, we're starting this new record label. Sony gave us a budget. I want you to come through, meet everybody and maybe do some work. So that became like my first job was, was being art director at Good Music at Kanye's first label. And everything there was a startup. It really was like the thought process there was all right, we have a budget. Kanye has this wave. His album just had just come out at the time. He was getting looks from every single artist who wanted him to either produce or executive produce an album. There were ways to make money on it. He was trying to put his own group together. And this was like John Legend. And um, and this is like a bunch of acts that don't necessarily exist anymore, but they were big at the time. And it was like everything. It was all right, we need a website and a logo and packaging and we need merch. And it was, it became this all-encompassing myself and a small group of people. As soon as the work was available, grab it and start working on it. And then that, but that's really inevitably what becomes product design to me. Everybody looks at product design two ways. It's either a tangible thing, like you're making furniture, you're making something like a toy, or it's digital and it's UI and UX. But back then, 2005, six, seven, 
the apps didn't exist. Like the app store didn't exist, obviously, but apps didn't exist the way they exist now. The phone was only meant for communication. It wasn't meant for browsing the web or for doing any of the things that we do on it now. So it was like, all right, we have to get as much attention as possible, make a little bit of money doing this and turn and productize the artist. And I think that that was the first foray into it where you realize that it's more than just the logo. It's more than just the design, the packaging. It's everything. Let's make as much as we possibly can to engage this user to make this audience full circle where they'll come back every time they'll spend money with us. They'll show up at tour dates. There'll be somebody who sticks around. They'll share the website with their friends. And then that was like the real sort of, that was my learning curve. And then as soon as the the app store launched, like 2007, 2008, the iPhone comes out, people started thinking about what the app store and the universe is going to look like. Now I started having conversations with a bunch of startups. And the next foray into that was with a company called Scroll Motion, which was a digital publisher. And their whole thing was like bringing magazines to life because this is so antiquated to talk about it now. But when like we would talk to Esquire and Vogue and like Oprah Magazine, they had they had pages and they had this great content, but it was so static. If you do something where you add a video or you add touch points or you make it truly what was interactive at the time, people's heads exploded. They were like, oh my God, this is what the future looks like. It's like everything's going to be this based on touch and interaction and moving my finger from one place to the other and it drags something with it. This sounds so insane and stupid right now, but back then we were going to these demos and you'd see like these executives and their eyes would light up when they saw something happen inside of this digital magazine. And from that point forward, it was just like, all right, this is what my future looks like. I want to be in a position that I could create interactivity, create delight with users, bring something to life in a way that nobody thought about it before and really open up what in my mind was design and make it and, and commercialize it in a way that's not just trying to sell a t-shirt. I think that was like early on when you're younger, it's like, yeah, you're a designer. I'm going to, I'm going to make t-shirts or whatever. I'm, I'm going to do fashion. But eventually you realize like there's so many more ways, at least I realized this to bring things to life, make people happy and make money doing it. So that was the start of it. And then it was a bunch of, a, a few other startups and doing software for hedge funds and all these things together, this mix of like tangible product, digital product, a little bit of finance, which was part of my whole sort of ecosystem of design, turned into where I am now, which is Rally, which to me was always about storytelling, the media aspect of it, telling the stories and nostalgia around these great assets, but letting somebody actually own a piece of it and invest in it was like the finance portion of it. And it kind of all came full circle. As I hear your talk and I, and I think about the, the, the best title for this episode, um, Time Traveler comes to mind, right? From analog to mobile to whatever's next, to rally, to that nostalgia feeling, to being tuned in, to understanding what's cool today, but what's going to be cool tomorrow, right? I mean, what, what, what people uh, you know are going to like. Um, do you see that in yourself? And, and what do you think is next, right? It, it, you saw those changes. You you saw the executives lighting up when they realized that you could put a magazine into a mobile phone and make it fun with videos, with interactive design. And now there's a whole crazy array of new things happening, AR, VR, AI, right? What what Where's your mind going? You're never stopping mind. Where, where, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, listen. I first off, that's like what you just described. It's like time travel. I would. I, that's like. I, that's like a title that I wish I had, where I could say like, I know what. I know what already happened. I know what's happening next type of thing. I wish I had that heat in. Like that was. That's the one piece I feel like I'm always missing is the ability to really accurately predict to a T where space is going to go. I think I've gotten more comfortable not knowing where it's going over the course of the last five years to building this business. In that, I think that we've gotten to this era right now that. Uh, someone who's between the age of probably like 
35 and like 45, 50 right now almost has a little bit of an advantage because we came up in this era where it was all analog. The birth of the internet and like AOL and the communication tools that everybody got really comfortable with early, being self-taught, learning design and learning a little bit of code, but then also this complete shift to everything digital where we are now and understanding that the future probably looks a little more like the past than this new generation realizes. I think that what we've, with that, with this new generation, there's one thing that they're missing right now because they're killer designers. They spin things up so quick. They think in a way that is just like never ending kind of like connect dots. I see where something is. I see where I want it to be. I know how to cut all these steps out and get to where I'm going. And that's what a 19 or 20 year old has the advantage on right now. But the one thing that's happened because of that in my mind is that we've gotten to this point where everything feels so disposable and people are are seeing something in a, in a week or in a month that would have taken a year or would have taken two years, not that long ago. And they're expecting that to be the way it works. And I think that when you get to a world where everything is disposable, everything has to be what's next, what's next, what's next. I think it loses a little bit of its personality. It loses its identity. And I, I don't, I see that happening with digital products. So for me, I think the, the best thing that can happen and will happen going forward in at least the near future. And when I say near future, I think 10 years is a back to a, to almost full analog. I think that the places and the things that we're going to see pop up, and I think AI allows this to happen, are going to be physical spaces. I think it's going to be a lot of a lot of sort of small footprints that have really big exposure and expand quickly. I think that as the population that I just talked about, that 35 to 45 starts to age. I think that the ability to sort of bring things to life for that group specifically, who's a really big group, there's this huge transfer of wealth happening where they're going to have the means to do things that are that are a little bit different than their previous generation could and that the new generation can't. They're going to look for that comfort in a little bit of nostalgia in physical things and slowing it down and doing more of that Rick Rubin, go back to Zen and not have to worry about the outside influences. What that means, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I know that with New York as an example, like we run a retail space on that's like 4,000 square feet on on uh, Broadway between Howard and Grand. And it's a museum, but it's also kind of a meeting place, and a community space. And there's events that happen there. And it takes like it really takes a village to run that space. And it, it has huge overhead. And we have to make money on the events to, to make sure we're at break even every month. We have to sell merch. We do all these things to bring it to life. That to me only works for a business like ours where you have this investment app. That's really the 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 mothership of all of it. And that's like a marketing line item for us. But we happen to make money on it. The future here, because rents are so high, but people want to do so many more things. If I was starting right now, I would find you know a 200 square foot space. Uh, I would I would buy a used coffee machine from La Marzocco. I'd put it in the window. I would be selling six dollar lattes for as long as I possibly could. Staff it with two people. You know, after four, five, six months, you assume you're making probably twenty, thirty thousand a month, probably in New York if you're in the right spot. Gross revenue. If there's any point that it gets to like closer to break even, you probably stop doing it, go on to the next one. That's like the start to me of doing something physical that doesn't require a lot of overhead where, you know, the disposability aspect of it is still taken into account. You move on to the next thing. But I think longer term, those physical spaces and the ability to sort of take this aging population of millennials who really long for that feeling of the past is going to be almost anti-digital. I think we're probably like three, four years out. I think I think AI and what's happened with AI is interesting in that it makes a lot of things easier. But I think it also, for, for a lot of the SaaS and the enterprise products, it it takes the value of what they do down a little bit because it's going to be so much cheaper to build and market and own those products with AI and with the ability to not have to have 20, 30, 40 salespeople doing something and not have sort of a huge code base that you're trying to maintain on a day-to-day -day and do it with the existing, with, with something new and a new way to do it. 
So those physical consumer-based sort of interactions are the one thing that, in my mind, AI can't take and that VR can't necessarily take. It'll exist, but I think that'll be for the younger generation. I think the older generations who are going to have a lot of the money to spend are going to look to reconnect with those physical experiences from the past. It's happening a lot in music as well, right? The vinyl coming by like super strong, the 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 performance and looking at the musician. I was talking to a, a cousin of mine, just recorded a, a record, right? And they did it, you know, they just, all of them got together in a studio and recorded live, no metronome, no no tracks, no like super, mm -hmm. you know, auto-tune and, and editing. I mean, It's a niche, right? Still, but as I, I agree in what you say in that, you know, and I'm from that cohort that, you know, we're starting to want to go back to valuing things in a different way. So that takes me to my next question. How did you came up with the concept for Rally? Was it thinking about all of these things uh, with your co-founders? How how did that came about? Yeah, I mean, it, everything comes from personal need, I think, at times, and that Part of it was we were all myself and, and Max and Chris, my co-founders, we were talking about doing something like this for a long time together. The opportunity didn't exist because I think it required a little bit of, of a shift in mindset. We knew that at a certain point, people are going to see these collectibles and see these alternative assets and, and feel like they should be part of a portfolio. But when we were talking about the idea 2013, 2014, the first time we really brought it up and started talking about it, the means didn't exist yet. Crowdfunding was kind of new. Uh, the only thing that people really thought about as an investment that wasn't like stocks or bonds at that point was still like real estate was the one that was easy to people wrap their head around and say like, yeah, you always make money on real estate. But when we looked at collectibles and things that we cared about, it was like classic cars and watches and and sports cards and all these things. The best versions were not the ones that we had. They were the ones that were only available to a really small group with money and with access. I think we weren't that. So it was like, all right, if we could do something where we're pooling our money together and have a couple of inroads to the coolest stuff and the best pieces that we know are going to be relevant in the future, then we'll have those museum quality pieces that have gained value over the course of generations and we'll have that in our portfolio. So now 2015 comes around and you have Coinbase is starting to get a little bit of a wave because crypto is starting to become sort of part of the, the ubiquity of, of the way that we trade and, and life. You had Robinhood who was building up a crazy wait list and about to launch at that point. And I was like, all right, people at a younger generation that were like us care about equities and, and understand how that works a little bit. The last bucket was collectibles and alternative assets. It was the one thing that hadn't been done in our minds correctly for retail and for regular people. So we're like, all right, let's test it with the, the hardest asset class, which at that point was classic cars. So basically pulled our money together. Chris actually bought the first car. It was a $70,000 Lotus. It had a great story. The pictures came out crazy. We're like, all right, if we can convince people what we already know, that these are the things that you care about, but they're also things that can be investments. And we can sell this one car to hundreds of people, then maybe there's a product there. So we launched a really basic demo version of the app that I kind of built out with some offshore developers in like in a month or two. It worked. We were shocked. People like family and friends in one degree of separation, which is the real indicator of whether or not it works early on, were investing, putting hundreds of dollars into this car, thousands in some cases. At the end, we had like 100 investors. It's probably like 40 days to fill it, but we did an IPO of a car. And that was like the first, and we did that with like the real, the way our lawyers put some stuff together. We spent a little bit of money to make sure it was like regulated in the right way and that it was a true security. And now we had a template and we're like, all right, let's just start doing this and see what happens. Next thing we knew, you know, there's hundreds of assets on the platform. We're going into sports cards and we're going into wine and all these other asset classes. You look down and all of a sudden it's a product. So we're able to raise some money. 
We're able to bring a staff in. We're able to start thinking about physical experience and do some pop-ups here and there. We put the assets on display. Someone could walk in and see it. And now you see a Ferrari Testarossa in person inside of a store. It makes no sense to you. You ask, what is this? And now it's like, all right, you can actually own this right now if you want. So you can own a piece of this the same way you own stocks or own crypto. And it took off. And that was, from that point forward, it was really about a mix of two things. One was explaining to the community what these things actually were, the storytelling around it. To say like, all right, this particular watch is important because it's the first of, it was designed by this person. This one has the right provenance, all the papers, all the authenticity, all the check marks you need. But also it's one that was the start of something. It's relevant right now. It's going to be relevant in the future. Here's what the price chart looks like over 20 or 30 years. Once we had those two pieces together inside the app and it was a real personal experience, I think it became way easier for us to not have to worry about like begging people to pay attention to it and, and do all the paid marketing. Like it became really, really good word of mouth for us. So now, you know, $60 million later under, under management, raised a bunch of money, an app that half a million people use. It, it's obvious to us, at least, even though we're playing the long game, that where you have, you know, Robinhood or Fidelity or whatever for your equities, you have Coinbase or Gemini or any other platform for your, for your crypto, you're going to have a rally for all your alternative assets, for all your collectibles. So, you know, long story short, it was a need for us. We were able to do it with a huge group and a community of people who thought and cared the same way we did. And now we're at a point that it's it's got the traction to really truly carve out a huge space in this market that still exists with trillions of dollars of assets and millions of people who really care about it. And every day we're trying to sort of you know build in that mission where it's it's create a world where you can invest in things you really care about and make some money with your friends. And if you could do something like that on individual asset classes, then that's a win. And what's next for Riley? As you continue growing, as you continue adding different types of assets, and and I imagine you have a you know a whole crew that is they you know all day long just thinking about what to add to the Riley collection, right? I mean, uh, but what what's next for the platform and for the concept? Yeah, I think that we everything we do here, and I've done this in my entire career. It's like do it first yourself before you you have it, and make sure it works correctly, and that the design, the look, and the feel are kind of exactly the way you envision it to be and that it meets all those needs and meets that criteria. So now that we've done that for the better part of four or five years, we're opening this up to other brands, other platforms, to other archives, to people who have great assets and have audience, but don't necessarily have the product or the regulatory expertise or the template set up to do it. So what we've done over the last you know five or six months is that we slowed down the amount of IPOs we were doing ourselves. And we started opening up the platform to a bunch of partners that we're working with who have the best possible collections of an individual vertical and have an audience who knows and cares about it most, but have never had equity in that asset. So that starts with a, a partnership that we um, that we announced a couple of months ago with DuPont Registry, who's a massive, massive car platform for luxury, collector cars, everything in between, massive dealer network, a deal with Sotheby's to exit individual assets and sell them at auction, but also 60 million, 70 million users across all their media platforms who are the dreamers. And the way that when we talk about them, about when we talk to that team about what that user base looks like, they're people who know every single detail about every single car. They they know more about you know vintage Ferraris and the person who owns the most vintage Ferraris on earth. And they're the people who can come in and really make meaningful decisions armed with data and information about their investments if they just had the opportunity. So we've kind of white labeled the platform for some of those partners. DuPont's the first one. We have a massive wine collection that's coming to market. 
We're working in the watch space with one or two potential partners. So I think that's a big focus of our team right now. Now that we know what the criteria looks like for an investment-worthy asset, we know what the user and the cohorts are going to look like and develop into. If you have a brand or you have some sort of sort of meaningful access to assets and audience and want your version of Rally, you can have that now. And that's a big part of our revenue strategy for 2024 as well. Then the other side of it is doing more with assets that we can bring to life and more than just an investment for our own IPOs and for our own assets that trade. So we did that recently with with Mickey Mantle, you know, one of the most famous baseball players of all time with a childhood home in Oklahoma. It was to us an underserved, underleveraged asset. It was a it's a home that looks and feels like a Norman Rockwell painting. It looks like Americana, but it's also the place where Mickey Mantle learned how to play baseball. So there's a barn on the property that has a bunch of dents in it. It's literally where Mickey Mantle was taking cuts and learning how to switch hit and put dents in the wall from just hitting that individual, from hitting a ball to those individual panels over and over again. So we did that IPO. A bunch of people were involved in it. And now we're going to open it up where you guys make the proposals of what we should do with that space. Should we run events there? Should it be an Airbnb? Should we make a museum? All those become revenue drivers that potentially spit off dividends to individual users who are part of it. You get ongoing revenue. But it's an asset that lives in the portfolio that's more than just a stagnant asset. So the IPOs that we do have to have massive fan base, but have to have the ability to kind of bring it to life and bring the community in and do something truly unique with the space or with an asset that's not just keep it in a safe somewhere. So you'll see more IPOs like that from us that bring the community into it and have them make the decisions on what we do with the space or what we do with that individual asset. So those two things are what we're working on now nonstop. We also have our first museum space, our first real full museum space here in New York, again, on Broadway and Howard Street in Soho. That's open to the public where all that stuff is on display. So we're doing a bunch of events. We're going to do some panels. We're doing a bunch of sort of bigger things with that space. And now we're launching multiple spaces with partners who have you know, great locations, maybe have the same brand or same ethos as we do and want to bring some stuff to life and bring new users and new investors in. We'll be doing more of that throughout the course of the year too. So you can expect a few more of those spaces. But really it's it's all about for us, it's it's you know, it's a it's going back to music. It's like it is it's a, it's an analogy that that uh I'm gonna probably butcher this. I think it's Brian Eno said it, um, who's like legendary in terms of in terms of where he lives in kind of music philosophy. But it's this thought that there's great ideas and that requires like, you know, a lot of thought, but those are sort of brought to life by communities. And then, you know, one person at one platform kind of articulates it and does the thing that everybody was expecting to happen, but no one had done yet. And that for us is what we're trying to do on a day to day. And I see that when you see, you know, we have a dinosaur, we have a triceratops in the window of our space downstairs and we're only open for retail for every people walking in and out on weekends during the week. It's a lot of events and, and visits and kind of appointments. But all day, it's people outside, it's adults and it's kids, it's families. They're, they're looking at it and taking pictures of it and reading the description about it. And they're using the QR code to go into the app. That to us is the community aspect that we know is way underserved when it comes to how important these objects and these assets are. And the idea that you can own it, you can own a piece of it, is a really, really important thing that we believe in the future is going to just be a given. It's going to be an automatic. Like, I love this thing. I want to have equity in it. I can. That for us, anything we can do to support that, whether it's in physical spaces, digital in the app or with partners who have access to inventory and to audience, that's a space we're going to be in and that we want to be a, a huge part of going forward. Absolutely love it. Um, so you, you are a product designer, but you're also an entrepreneur. Um, did you have to make that switch? Was it part of you? Was it part of, you know, your upbringing, your father, the restaurant, your mother, um, you know, was, was being an entrepreneur always a part of you or did you have to learn hard lessons and what it, does it take to succeed as an entrepreneur? 
I mean, I had to learn hard emotional lessons, I think, along the way, because it's I'm I'm a maniac sometimes too. And I just if I want something, I'm just gonna go like grab it and not I'm trying to not let people tell me like, nah, you can't do it that way, or there's a better way to do it. I was like, nah, my way is the best sometimes. I think that when you're starting a business, especially when you're doing it when you're raising money from true venture capital and you're now you have like a boss, basically, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, once you take the money, like that's your boss now. You know what I mean? Like those those are the people that are making a lot of like the choices for you, whether you believe it or not. That had to change a little bit, but I think I got, I mean, listen, I got, I got super lucky personally. My, my parents were, were super young and like, they kind of let me do whatever I wanted. My grandmother helped raise me. And she was very much like from a different generation where it was like, yeah, don't worry. Like the kids can run around outside when they're three years old, when they come home, they'll be, they'll be home at nine o'clock at night when it gets dark out, you know? So I think I got lucky in that. And that a lot of it was like, learn it your own way. And I think a lot of the, the, what was instilled in me early on was a lot of support from the people around me. We're like, listen, if you if you think, you know, art is a way to make money, by all means, like we'll support you in doing that. You realize really quickly on your own, and this is part of the entrepreneur side, that, you know, making money as an artist is really, really tough to be like a working artist and and use that as a means of supporting yourself is really, really tough. And then the entrepreneur switch happens when you when you realize like it might be time to kind of cut your losses, take the talents and the skill that you have and apply it to something different. And that was the piece that I kind of learned along the way. And that's also a big part of like building any business is understanding that you might have a vision in your head. You might be completely positive, 100% sure that that's exactly the direction you should go in. You might have people around you who love you that support you in that mission and that process. But at a certain point, if you see the landscape changing, you have to make those moves really, really quickly because the market doesn't wait for anybody. Like the money doesn't wait for anybody. So if you're going to see something around a turn and you believe that's the direction you need to go in and maybe the direction you're in right now is a little bit stagnant, making that switch and knowing it's not a failure, it's just a new mission based on what you on all your experience, everything in the past, is like the most important part of being an entrepreneur. Because if not, you get stuck doing the same thing for decades sometimes without necessarily having it work and you get blinded by what the future looks like. That goes back to our, the start of our conversation. Like if you're not paying attention to what this new generation is doing and what's happening around you on a day-to-day, you can get stuck doing the same stuff over and over again. And from an entrepreneur standpoint, Switching from the things you love, whether it's design or anything else, into the things that you know are going to generate interest, make money, and and really build something unique is the most important part of it. Rob, one last question to you: um, Do you ever, do you ever just uh, uh, switch your brain to something else, any hobby, anything that that, or are you always uh, on that creative side? I'm afraid to ask because I'm imagining the answer might be, oh no, when I have you know downtime, I just draw and create stuff, right? I would. I'm honestly like it's the the good thing and the bad thing about starting a business that you really that's for retail and for consumers that you really care about is that inevitably you build something for yourself that takes every interest, everything you do on a day to day, and just turns it into into a corporation more than anything else. It turns it. It's like it's hobbies LLC. You know what I mean? It's like all the things I would typically do. But now we're doing them every single day. So like it's the gift and the curse. I live six blocks from our office. So it's easy to just walk in here, open a computer and start doing something that I thought was going to be the day off. And, you know, like my girlfriend, the people around me are, are never too happy about that, I think. But that's also that's kind of what I tell people here. And that's when when I'm having that conversation with with the kids that work here or with anybody that's around, like some of the companies I advise and the people that I talk to. You got to do it like your life depends on it if you want it to be successful because your life does depend on it. These are the things I care about most. This is the stuff that I'm thinking about every single day, all day. I'm not dedicating the 100 hours a week that I'm working to it. I've dedicated my whole life to like 
nostalgia and collectibles and design, all these things have infiltrated every aspect of my life. Every single Christmas gift that I bought for people this year was somehow rooted in a collectible and nostalgia. I didn't realize I was even doing it until it was done. And I think that that's where all of this kind of ends up. It's that thing where, you know, do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life is like the mantra. That's nonsense. It's just like you accidentally are doing things that you would have done anyway, and now it's work. If that happens and those two worlds blend, to me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There needs to be downtime. There needs to be stuff where you're with family, with friends, with the people you care about, but it never ends. I mean, right now, like today, I'm talking to my girlfriend about buying a new couch for our apartment. And like, I'm not going to just buy the couch. I'm going to do a full render of the space. And I'm going to put, here's what the art's going to look like on this wall. And here's what that couch looks like if it's the 93 inch version versus the 104 inch version. It becomes a product exercise by accident. I think that's inevitably what's happened to me with everything that I get when it comes to downtime, you know? Rob, this has been an amazing pleasure. Uh, I love your energy. You know, if I could get just an, a little tiny bit of your energy, uh, that will get me going for months. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate I that too, man. I will be in New York uh, in January. I will visit your the Rally Museum. I'm super excited about it. Um, and thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Now, likewise, I really appreciate it, man. Great conversation.